Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Rundown with Shannon Robnett. My guest today is Paul Anderson. Paul, before I uh, we get into the questions, I want you to just take a minute and give us uh, give us the background on on what you do and how long you've been in this segment of the market. So, as many of you know, and those for those of you who don't, I do residential real estate financing, so mortgage financing. Long story short, you know, August would be 21 years, Shannon. Um, wow. Just like you, though, prior to that, my family was involved in real estate. So it's really kind of what I've done my whole life, just like yourself. But the last 21 years, and specifically mortgage only since 2011. Okay. Okay. So so you've seen the market cycles. You've uh, you've seen the ups and the downs. And, and uh, you know, Paul, there's a lot of people that are coming back to real estate. Um, after swearing off, you know, everybody was drinking the juice in 05 and 06. And, and then there was that, that time in eight and nine when everybody thought real estate was horrible, 10, 11, 12 were atrocious. What is it you've, as a mortgage banker, what is it you saw that the people that were successful through the downturn, what is it you saw that they did that, that others didn't? You know, I, one of the things, and I've always talked about this, and, and for myself personally, from a business perspective, I like working with investors. Um, doing what it is we do for a living, investors, it's a, it's a business transactional, it's not emotional. So they're not worried about where they're gonna lie their head or where their kids are gonna grow. We're all worried about how does this make the most amount of money for them. So for the people that were buying during the downturn and were able to take advantage of an abundance of distressed properties, be it, um, foreclosures, short sales, those sorts of things, they're performing really well right now. I mean, I've stayed in contact with a lot of those people and still continue to work with them. And, you know, they really set the table because we'll talk about this a little bit later and it's really relevant with what's going on in the market now. Okay. When, when, the, when the value of your home goes down 25%, but you're in it right, it's just a paper loss. Yes. And you can always come back like we've seen the market do now. You lose 25% of your 401k. In some cases, it's gone and it may not come back if that bankrupts some of the companies that were there, are inside of your 401k. So the risk is greater. And we'll go into that more detail later. But the people that bought in and held and, let, and you're, learned how to use leverage are doing really well right now. And they're in a really great position. Yeah. You know, Paul, that's, that's so true. And, and I think a lot of people go into the mindset, go into real estate with the mindset that I'm going to buy... Uh, a house and then and then when that house becomes more valuable I'm going to sell that house and I'm going to buy a bigger house for me right. and a lot of times you see that they price themselves out of being a real estate investor because they're they're getting the bigger backyard or they're getting the better zip code right um, so so Paul when you when you look at that uh, you know when when we see what's happening with the financial market today I mean gee whiz what are, what are rates even at today when the bond goes under 0.5? You know, so the ironic thing is, is the last eight, nine days, the market's been all over the place, as everybody watching this knows. This morning, we opened up down over 2,000 points right out of the gate. They suspended right. trading for 15 minutes. So they kind of have a stopgap measure that they put in place to curb it. Rates, you know, they dipped a little bit, and then they popped up a little bit. So they're still all over the place. But I was locking people at under 3.5% this morning. Three and a half percent. I wouldn't loan my brother money at that, and I like him. So, so Paul, when you're seeing when you're seeing people get a mortgage, I mean, you you a mortgage 
you know, I've tried to explain it to people before, but a mortgage is, is that's a permanent thing. I mean, when you, when you get a 30-year a mortgage, all you have to do is continue to pay that payment and you continue to have that loan until it's paid off in 30 years. What does that, what does that really look like when, when you're talking about value and you're talking about things going back to what six percent? How long ago was six percent, Paul? You know, not in the last, well, let's say seven, eight years ago. I mean, we were in the high fours, low fives just a little over a year ago. So that was, yeah, wow, five percent. And that's great. Historically, if you look at the time when they first started tracking interest rates, the average for the United States has been a little over 8% average. Right. So we're well under half of that right now. So, Paul, when we think about this, you know, for the new guy, the guy that's sitting there and he's, he's trying to figure out, well, what, is, what does an 8% mortgage mean? Um, I, I, I often heard that 7% is kind of the place where you pay two times for the house in interest and one time in principal. So, Correct. so the fact is that if you buy a hundred thousand dollar house and you do go the 30 years, your house should be worth $300,000 uh, because that's what you paid for it. Correct. But, but when you're looking at locking in at three and a half percent, that means that you're paying for the house and you're paying one time again. I mean, so you're paying another hundred on your mortgage over 30 years. Right. Give or take. So, and the value, you know, you use the rule of seven, the value of your home should double every seven years in a, in a standard appreciating market. Not, right. not even like a market like we see now, even a, a slower market than what we're seeing now. But, it, but the other thing is people look at, people tend to look at that and go, well, not in the last seven years, but if you stretch that line to be 30 years, you can always see where that is. I remember in, it was 1989, my dad had an award from uh, the Parade of Homes where he, he, he got the best uh, kitchen and the best master bath in houses under 50 grand. It was actually, I mean, this was a brand new 1,200 square foot house that he built on a brand new subdivision uh, that was that was under fifty thousand dollars. That house today is is, uh, you know, that's a three hundred seventy five four hundred thousand dollar house in 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 our town, and that's and that's been forty years, thirty five right. years, you know. Yeah. So, so definitely definitely done that. Well, Paul, what do you see? Um, you know, there's, uh, Warren Buffett loves to say that he, he, he buys when there's blood in the streets. Would you, would you think that this uh, coronavirus, this, this stock market meltdown, would you consider that blood in the streets? I would. I mean, well, here's where it's going to be probably a little bit different in the real estate market. Builders, builders are smart individuals, and they're seeing rates drop significantly from what they were even two weeks ago, Shannon. What does that mean for them? pricing increase because yeah. they can sell the same home and a buyer can come in and buy it but because the rate is lower and the payments close to the same give or take they're still going to qualify for that so right. you know yeah right now it right now is a great time if you i mean what i told somebody earlier today if you can get a rate of three and a half and whatever else you're doing with your money can't make more than three and a half percent you're doing the wrong thing right that's very true that's very true um, you know, and, and Paul, when you, when you see 
this. I mean, this is a great time for people uh, to be to be leveraging that rental house, that first rental property or the second rental property, uh, because because what they're able to do is create greater cash flow uh, right. because their payment's three hundred dollars less, right? I mean, uh, I mean, if, if we're looking at a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar home. Uh, what did 1% rates have dropped a half a percent in the last month? They've dropped, they've dropped a percent over the last year. So what is that? What does that equate to on a hundred thousand dollars? You know, that usually we just market by percentage, but that 1% drop, depending on where you're buying can be about 10 to 12% more purchasing power. Right. Um, and then back to your earlier point about the rate drop for people who do have investment properties, I just helped one of my clients refinance two of their properties and we dropped their rate almost three quarters of a percentage point. So for that exact same property, now their cash flow is that much better, but yeah. they also got to reset their amortization or their uh, depreciation schedule. Right. So they've right. got a new note on that. So all the tax advantages of it, and we won't have enough time to get in today, but there's a whole other side to this with just the tax advantages. Yeah. So real quick, Paul, let's touch on that for just a second. If I have a, if I have a note on my house, I bought that house my dad built uh, and, and I paid, you know, 50,000 bucks for it. And, and I come to today and it's worth 400,000 and I refinance it with you. The IRS looks at that and says, now you have $400,000 in additional depreciation. Well, generally what they're going to look at that, they'll go off the value of the property and you can adjust that. And that's where I get somebody's accountant involved. Okay. But here's the other thing. And this just came up on a podcast I was doing the other day, Shannon. They're like, yeah, well, I don't want to do a cash out refinance because I don't want the tax liability. And it blew their mind to find out that's not taxable income. Correct. So Correct. you can, you can withdraw that and not have any tax implication or consequences for the money that you're pulling out, but you can also reset your depreciation schedules as well. Yeah. And you know, Paul, that's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't, understand about real estate that is so phenomenal is the money that you make in real estate is not taxable until you sell the property. If, right. you, if, if, you, if you bought Apple stock at 50 bucks and it's now at 150, you can't get access to that money. It's all on paper. But if your house that you bought for 50 is now worth 150 and somebody comes to you and says, I'd like to do a refinance, that money's accessible to them now to, to do home improvements with, to go buy another rental property, yep. and with no tax consequences whatsoever, that doesn't happen until that house is sold. Correct. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. You know, Paul, that's, that's one thing that, uh, the, I, I guess if there is a bad, a bad thing about the interest dropping uh, from the high fives, uh, over a year ago is that there's less to write off when it comes to Uncle Sam. <laughs> Correct. And that's, I mean, that's a real thing for some people. If they're taking the mortgage interest tax deduction and itemizing on their taxes, all of a sudden your interest rate drops by 40%. That may impact your taxes. I know people who need, who use that money to get money back every year. I'm like, yeah, you need to adjust your withholding because that's going to go down significantly, but your cash flow is going up. Yeah, yeah, they definitely won't be. They definitely won't be using that as their tax deduction this year. So, if they're refinancing. So, Paul, what is uh, what is the typical cost on a refinance on a hundred thousand dollars versus 
so if someone's looking at that saying, hey, my house, I have a $100,000 house, I wanna refinance it, I'm gonna bring that down. What are the typical percentage fees? What is, what is involved with that? So first I'd like to see somebody who's got a $100,000 house, period, I haven't seen one of those in a couple of years. But, <laughs> but the reality of it is, you know, it's, it's usually percentage based and then there's some fixed fees in there too. So generally I tell people, you're gonna run about two, two and a quarter to 3% of the transaction. Usually the smaller the refinance, the larger percentage of the fees are, the larger the refinance, the smaller, because there's certain things that are percentage-based, and then there's other things that are flat costs. So the larger they are, but a good rule of thumb is on a smaller refinance, if you say $150,000 or under, you're probably looking at 3% of that for fees. Now, here's another side of that, though. When it comes time for filing taxes, some of those fees are tax-deductible. So you can take you can take your closing statement into your account, just like I did the other day. And he's like, well, these ones, these items here are actually tax deductible, so we're going to include that with your since I since I itemize, we're going to include that in there for. Okay, okay. Well, that's great to know, Paul. Another thing, when when we're looking at, uh, you know, and, and this is what I counsel people with a lot. You know, you want to get involved in in real estate, and and you know, I learned this. Uh, this term the other day from a from a person, uh, he said he was trying to house hack a rental, and okay. because I'm not because I'm old, uh, I had to ask him. I said, "What is house hacking?" And he said, uh, "He said, well, you know, it's it's you buy a house and you rent out two rooms in a three bedroom house, and they they pay your payment." And I said, "Man, that's different. When I grew up, that was just called broke." And right. And, and that was what we did to survive. But, you know, I, I often tell people, you can't get in the real estate game. Don't even consider getting in the real estate game unless you own real estate you live in. And, and I understand that in certain places, uh, you can't afford to buy something in New York City, but that doesn't mean that you can't buy something. And I, and I, often, I, I often counsel people that the first thing you gotta buy is your house because your house is going to be the cheapest house you ever get into because of the down payments that are involved. And if you're dealing with Paul tells, I mean, like an FHA program, I mean, what are we coming up with out of pocket? You know, for your down payment on an FHA, three and a half percent of the purchase price, conventional as little as three. Obviously, most people know with a VA loan that there is no down payment for our veterans, right. as there shouldn't be. Nope. Um, USDA rural development in and around some of our areas here, another 100% loan program. Zero yeah. down payment. So, so you're essentially, you're getting into this for maybe some minor closing costs and you're off and running and, and now your house is appreciating to where you can then begin to get that refinance, get those funds out to go buy your second home. Correct. And, that's, and that's really what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, if you've got an asset that's appreciating at three to 5% in a marketplace and you have a $300,000 asset, that's 10 grand a year you know, you're getting some, you're getting some substantial amount of money that you're going to be able to get access to fairly soon that you're going to be able to apply toward that next real estate purchase. Correct. So Paul, I want to, I want to ask you another question. You said before that you work with a lot of real estate investors. And by the way, Paul, I, I thank you for doing my loans for me. Um, just a little bit of a plug there. Uh, but what, what are you seeing that real estate investors do in this market that, that you think should be, or, or let, let's just, let's leave it a little bit more ambiguous. 
because I know you can't necessarily give your opinion as a, as a, as a mortgage broker, but what is it that you see that realtors or real estate investors are doing that you think is pretty prudent that non-real estate investors aren't doing and they're missing the boat on? Well, I think like every other thing, it comes down to education. And I know, you know, you yourself, you're constantly educating yourself. I am doing it all the time. They're educated and they're looking and they have a good team around them. So that's why when we talk about, you know, like for example, a real estate agent or a lender such as myself, you have to understand what an investor is looking for and how that works. What an investor wants, they want return with right. minimal exposure. Whereas when somebody's buying their own home, they want three bedroom, four, you know, three bedroom, three bath, a great yard to raise John and Jane, Johnny and Jamie and all those sorts of things. It's different. So understanding the dynamics, but also what I'm seeing from a lot of investors is they're diversifying. And so what I mean by that is single family right now, you know what, while it's still good, it's not as good as it's been, but multifamily is looking a lot better. So understanding right. how to diversify their assets and diversify what they're doing within real estate, but they're educated and they're not emotional and they've got a great team around them. So they've got an agent who's finding the deals for them and negotiating the best price and terms, a lender right. who's working to do the same thing on the loans, an accountant, a financial planner who's on board, because you can't do it all yourself. No, nope. you don't. You can't go out, find the property, get it financed, rent the property up, handle the property management. So you have to interview and vet and have a team of professionals around you who have the education and strength in areas you don't and help you go find the deals. Because a lot of my investors, they work during the day. They still like their jobs. Right. They love their W-2 income. And real estate, in addition to providing additional cash flow, provides them a tremendous write-off. Yeah. No, and you hear that a lot. You know, I, I know that, that, that several people that I work with they keep their W-2 jobs, uh, that keeps the lights on, that gives them the funds uh, for the real estate deals that they do. But more than that, when you start talking about, you know, they're in the, like you said, the 40% tax bracket and they're taking, you know, $10,000 in depreciation on a home and they're taking the interest right off of another $4,000 on a home. And then they have, a, they have their own business because they're in the management side of things or they're in real estate. So then they're writing off their vehicles and their cell phones and a room in their house. I mean, by the time they're done, they've taken the first 50 or $60,000 of their W-2 income and made that That's a tax write-off, which, which people don't understand. 40% of that was going to be paid in taxes. So they really made an additional 20 grand on their real estate right. by not paying that in taxes because that was money you were going to pay Uncle Sam. It's now money that's in your pocket. So that's that's definitely an awesome point, Paul. Um, and and so, Paul, one of the other one of the last questions I I want to ask you is, when your crystal ball comes in, I know you've you've let me you you promised me you'd let me use it, but where do you see real estate going in the next three to five years as as a nation? Not just not just our little micro environment here, but but nationwide, where do you see real estate going with the job market and everything that we currently have? You know, the, the way things are trending now, I think eventually like all things, they have to slow down. But slowing down and stopping are two different things. So one thing that I wanted to talk about, and you keep hearing about this bubble, 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 bubble. I'm telling you guys right now, one of the reasons you're not seeing that is because we don't have the loan products we had before. So for the last 12 right. years, the, the underwriting standards, down payment requirements, it's a much better loan product that's going to the market. So the risk of default is less. So right. 
and, we're, and here's where that it penalizes the real estate investors. I know a lot of people are saying, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the next real estate bubble to burst, so I'm parked. And I tell <laughs> right. them every day you're waiting, that cost is going up, and you're not going to see the foreclosures and distressed properties like you saw before. You'll probably see a little bit. But, you know, over the next three to five years, everything, it'll slow down, but it should remain solid. And by the way, with the way the economy is going, they can't pump stuff up too high. They saw, you know, end of last year when the Fed started moving the overnight rate and realizing how delicate that balance is between a, being able to afford and not afford a home. And they understand how important housing is to our overall economy. It's one of our key economic drivers. So they, yeah. they know that they have to keep that check. You know, do I think we're going to continue to see double digit appreciation like we've seen here for the last three or four years for a while longer, but not forever. And that's not a bad thing. Right. Slowing down a little bit is not a bad thing as long as we're not regressing. Yeah. Well, and Paul, you know, I, I saw some national numbers that show that we're over a million houses short uh, nationwide yeah. because of the lack of construction in nine and 10. But, you know, I, I think about it this time of year, you know, my, my son's already planning for spring break and this is his final year in high school. And I just think about the fact that every year that high school pumps out out of the 2,500 kids, it pumps out 500 kids that are going to hit the marketplace, and maybe a third of them are going to go to college somewhere else out, outside of the state. A third of them are going to continue to live with their mom and dad, but a third of those kids are going to need their own place, and they're probably going to do the broke or the house hack or whatever and put three in a house, but that's still out of that, out of that high school with a graduating class of 500, it means that those 500 are going to need another 100 houses here in the valley right. that maybe they're going to put two or three from another school in, but that's still 60 houses that are coming every year out of every high school, out of every graduating class. Correct. That's and, a funny number when you think of it that way. Right. Well, and look at, look at um, even though I know there's immigration is a hot topic, one of the fastest growing segments in the entire housing market right now is the Hispanic community. That's right. And so, you know, being able to being able to account for that. But like you said, you wouldn't think, you know, 10, 12 years after the recession started that we'd have a housing shortage. But the simple fact is not building like we should have been building for three or four years, put everything behind it. Now it's just being compounded. Yeah. Well, we saw that in multifamily, you know, when the when the uh, the, the housing market went on its ear, it wasn't that people didn't need a place to live. They just weren't going to keep or couldn't afford to keep the one they currently had. And so they had to move from there to somewhere else. And now that that product's been consumed, it's been reallocated into the market. Um, we're seeing a huge shortage and, and, and that affects jobs and everything else. But Paul, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, I, I want to thank you for your insight. Uh, once again, Paul Anderson uh, and Shannon Robnett here at the Real Estate Rundown. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, my friend. All right.